Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. In it is an affiliate of Swan Bitcoin. I like Swan Bitcoin. It's the best way I've found to automatically accumulate Bitcoin daily, weekly, or monthly. It has the lowest fees in the industry, lower than Coinbase or Cash App. So what you do is you figure out how much you want to save, then set it and forget it. What I did was I looked at my monthly subscription services that I was paying for that I didn't really need, and I canceled them. And now I pay myself that amount in Bitcoin. To get started, visit swanbitcoin.com. That's swan like the bird, swanbitcoin.com. And go from zero to Bitcoin in as little as five minutes. Today we have Cassini Nazir. Cassini is a clinical associate professor at the University of Texas at Dallas, where he teaches classes in interaction design. He is area head for the design and production pathway in the School of Arts, Technology, and Emerging Communication. Design today is mostly concerned with giving users what they want and expect, but designing for curiosity turns this concept on its head, finding ways of bringing people serendipitous, unexpected experiences that open up new worlds of possibility. This is designing for curiosity, and Cassini is developing a framework and a set of practices to enable it. He's done some great videos on designing for curiosity, and I highly recommend that you find them online and watch them. In the conversation, we talk about information versus its opposite, exformation, and how exformation can be equally important to a design. We talk about the designer's role in supporting users with way finding versus way showing versus way losing defamiliarization as a technique to induce a state of mindfulness. So lots of threads woven into this conversation, and they prompted me to explore quite a few rabbit holes after we recorded. Maybe you'll find the same. So here we go, Cassini Nazir. So my name is Cassini Nazir. Uh, I usually tell people that's Cassini like the space probe that crashed into Jupiter in 2017, or the fashion designer. Most people are familiar with at least one, if not both. And I like to describe myself as a designer of conversations, of curricula and interfaces. It took me a long time to realize that I was more than just an interface designer. And I think we, most people are, but conversation is so critical. But I've been a design educator now. I'm going into, I think, my 11th or 12th year. Yeah, and we know each other because we were brought together by a mutual friend who was asking us about putting together a workshop about next generation technologies for wearables and immersive experiences and broadband wireless, like this kind of this convergence that we see with interactive clothing, interactive interfaces. Your specialty in information architecture, obviously, would be you know how how, we, how do you how do you lay out and structure the data and the information that that these displays and these technologies are conveying to people. Thanks for doing this. This is long time coming. I apologize, man. I've been wanting to do this for the longest time. <laughs> me too. Me too. No, it's it's not your fault at all. It's like every time I think, oh, like the lightest thing you're working on is perfect for a podcast. Three weeks later, you send me something new that's like even better. Your research is just progressing super fast. You've relocated and started a new position and you are planning to write a book. Anyway, there's like a lot going on. So <laughs> I have our uh, mind map from back when we first talked about designing for curiosity here, but I don't, I don't even know how relevant it is anymore. So exformation. So that's a construction. That's like a new word or is that an old word? Tor Noratranders popularized it in the 90s in his book, The User Illusion. Mm. And I actually looked on Google Ngram to see its usage, and it was used early, much earlier than that, but a very different usage. Nora Trander's use of exformation as explicitly discarded information has been sort of the going model of how exformation is used. So mm. we're using it here in this video recording. We are explicitly discarding certain bits of information so that we can get the file size to a proper size. Same thing for audio, right? Mm. This is why phone calls sound so bad the further back you go because of the explicitly discarded information. It's also compression, right? It's, it's, it's exactly what compression does and, and finds ways to discard information. But that's one perspective of exformation. And it's, it's a popular notion. Some years back, Kenya Hara gave a talk at the Interaction Design Association conference. I, I think this was in Seattle. And he 
wrote in his book, Designing Design, about exformation. And he uses that as a way to make things unknown. And that's the version or flavor of exformation that I've latched onto. Okay. That is, is, presents a ton of possibilities for us. Interesting. Something that comes up a lot when I do these podcast interviews is the fact that you and I can see each other. We have, we're recording video actually, but we'll never release it. Like I, I don't have a video podcast, so that gets thrown away. That's kind of exformation that's explicitly ignored, and yet it played a key role in the production of the information. If we didn't have this video link, the audio would sound different. And so one of the things you were saying about exformation at the beginning here I, reminded me of that, just that like the factors that lead to information can include something that eventually becomes exformation. And then, you know, there's almost a mystery. How did we get to this information? Like, why is it the way it is? And it actually has to do with these contingencies that have just been completely like lost to the sands of time. That just occurs to me as being really significant too in a digital age when, you know, there's this flood of information and we're constantly culling it and constantly ignoring it in order to try to make sense of the world. It doesn't even require information. It could be baking a cake. Mm -hmm. We buy ingredients of which we're only going to use a small amount. Mm -hmm. I don't use all the eggs to make a cake. I use, you know, how many ever eggs? Two, three eggs. Uh, I don't use all the butter. I don't use all the salt. And even whenever the, the cake is baked, I don't cut pieces for you or I and give you the entire cake. I've explicitly discarded most of the cake so that we can have a small slice of it. So the notion doesn't require information, right? It's, it's all around us. Mm -hmm. But in the information age, it changes. It's present everywhere. I mean, when Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad was on air, and even with some of the series that are happening right now, if somebody isn't at the same place that you are, you want them to explicitly discard the spoilers of those shows, mm -hmm. right? And that's a form of exformation that occurs. We see it on Twitter where these triple parentheses at one point in time had racist implications. I don't know whether or not that's still the case, but there was a narrow casting that happened where I forget the full details of the story, but one of your listeners will probably fill in the, the details where I've left off. But exformation sometimes narrow casts for particular audiences. It can be a form of dog whistling. Hmm. That's one shape where exformation takes us. It's an unfortunate place that, that it takes us to. Yeah. In an age of inclusion, it's about exclusion. But, you know, there's also kind of a flip side to exclusion. It was also interesting. I, I learned a while back that the word discrimination, we have such a negative connotation to it, but it's actually discrimination against, which has the negative connotation. To discriminate means to be able to tell the difference between. And it reminds me of this idea of diminished reality. Have you heard of this concept? So augmented reality, you have the world and then you have more information overlaid on it. And so now you have a richer experience. Diminished reality is the idea that you would use the same technology to block ads in your visual field, let's say, or to show you only, you know, what you're interested in to, because we are overwhelmed. And so it's hard for us to discriminate between meaningful information and spam, for lack of another word, or bullshit or whatever you want to call it. To use technology to exclude seems to me to be something that is going to become more and more important in the coming decade or two. Like trying to find ways to calmly, you know, solicit and experience information without static and other people's agendas breaking through and distractions and so on and so forth. Yeah, what, what you're describing there is, is really interesting. I remember maybe around 2011, 2012, a student began a project for which they ended up finding a plugin. Before, I think Adblock Plus or Adblock Pro came about, they had the idea of taking all the ads on a website and basically putting kitten images in replace of the ads. And it turns out not too long after this, there was, was actually a plugin for Chrome that allowed you to do just that. The playfulness mm. of something like that is really critical, right? That we can we can make our way through the world and, and remove that. But I do think that we need to inject those moments of play where it could be a cold, cruel world otherwise mm -hmm. as well. And that, you know, I, I hadn't thought about that for some time until something that you said helped me to remember it. Even memory is a form of exformation, right? We forget most of what we encounter. Right. The Ebbinghaus curve that is the curve of forgetting says, you know, 90 days after you're introduced to a concept, you'll probably forget it. So 
listener, 90 days after you've heard this talk on exformation, chances are, unless you encounter it again, you will forget what exactly is exformation. Thinking about memory too, I've noticed recently when I think back and have memories, I have very strong memories about certain events and certain periods of my life. And I, I've realized that I assume that that is the most important thing that happened or that is the sum total of what happened. And it's really an intense illusion that something that you remember intensely from you, you know, when you were 10 years old, you associate that with being 10 years old. But if you stop and think about the day-to-day grind of everything that must have happened that year, you know, you're remembering a tenth of a one of a millionth of a percent and you, but somehow your brain tells you that that is all that you need to know. And I think that's a very, it's obviously wrong, right? It's a fallacy. And so the, I guess the fallacy of information is that the exformation information boundary is meaningful, but it may not be. Like it may be arbitrary. It may be, again, somebody deciding what you need to know. Just because you're separating information from exformation doesn't mean that that's actually a good practice necessarily. Yeah, and it, it, is, it requires a level of mindfulness to make that perceptual cut of what are the things that I choose to exclude and choose to discard. Right. You know, sometimes in workshops to talk about different perspectives, I'll have somebody, members get up and stretch and I'll have them point their fingers toward the ceiling and then make a counterclockwise rotation of their hand and just mm-hmm. keep doing that above their head. Now I'll, I'll have them keep going and, you know, talk them through it, but have them move their hand down so that it's below their waist and have them say, now, which direction is your hand moving? And it's moving in the opposite direction, right? Nothing's changed except that my perspective oh, I see. of that has changed, yeah. right? It's, it's relative movement to me. At first it was above me. Now it's below my eyesight. Right. Nothing's changed except where we are in relationship or where it is in relationship to our perspective. Hmm. It's a way, I guess, of making real this notion that neither person is wrong about something. The perceptual cut that we're making on on that phenomenon Mm. is relative to our experiences and and relative to where we sit. And and also you mentioned frames of reference, right? So like when you have a common frame of reference, that's typically what we call information. And you, you gave the example of the spotting during turns of a dancer. They keep a frame of reference that prevents them from being dizzy and they're able to throw out all the rest of the visual information and stay stable. And that's really interesting because a dancer has frames of reference because of gravity. But how do you do that if you're in a space? If I'm pointing to you, Dave, and saying, you know, pick that up over there, Mm. I really have to be specific because I, I can't tell you up, down, left, or right because gravity no longer holds. And so there is a, a French dancer, Kitsu Dubois, who actually teaches French astronauts as well as American astronauts. How do you make those references when there really are none, right? It's just your body that you're referencing. How do you manage when certain informational constructs are no longer And I think what it does, very similar to the rotating one's hand and and seeing that it's rotating in a different direction, is that we're just unearthing embedded assumptions that we have about the world. Mm -hmm. Once they're unearthed, whether or not we choose to change them is up to us. I love those moments of discovery of embedded assumptions. Yeah. So tell me about exformation as it relates to play. I'm missing that link right now. Yeah, so, so for me... Exformation can be a way of making things that are familiar less familiar. Mm. And this is how Hara begins to, to explore this. And it's a vector that I've begun exploring myself. Of what are ways that we can take something we're familiar with and make ourselves unfamiliar with it? Mm-hmm. As it turns out, people have been doing this in the art and theater space for a long time. Uh, Bertolt Brecht, Viktor Shklovsky have these notions of strange making making something strange so that we can encounter it anew. Mm. And I think designers need to take those notions. And is it possible for us to design interactions where we are divorcing ourselves of our past notions and looking at something anew? What if Twitter did this? What if Facebook did this? 
what if our social media platforms helped us to, rather than see differences, perhaps look anew to see similarities Mm. where it seems like very few do. And there's an element of designing for serendipity there too. Like, you know, so many interests and significant life events are just the production of chance. Yes. And if, you know, our algorithms for recommendations are too strong, then we'll never discover anything new. And we'll all go down the same intellectual path over and over and over again. And that's a fundamental principle of information architecture, what you just described there. We tend to design for findability. Let's make things easy to find. Mm. And we, we talked a little bit about wayfinding. I describe it as way showing, which, yeah. which picks up on Per Mollerup's notion in the book of the same name. So findability is really critical, but discoverability, right? That serendipity, that spontaneity of walking down the grocery aisle and saying, you know, I didn't come in here with that item on my list, but I need that Mm. um, or I want that. Those moments are really critical and, and they make life interesting. We want on the one hand certainty, but we crave surprise. And that tension between certainty and surprise is something that I think designers haven't really explored as much. We, we tend to focus on certainty. We tend less to focus on surprise. Or maybe it's just that the business models aren't developed yet because artists have been doing, like you said, surprise, defamiliarization. These are really standard techniques, right? But the saying about artists, right, is you don't, you don't make money with that. If you can deliver certainty all day long, people are going to pay you for that all day long. Even if it's not in their interest to pay you for it, they will. And so I wonder if it's a crisis of how you make money from serendipity because it's so unpredictable. Maybe we, maybe there are models we could develop, but I don't think we have them yet. You know, Intuit, when Scott Cook was CEO, mm-hmm. I believe this is still the case. They talk about rather than minimally viable products, they talk about minimally delightful products. Right. And they design for delight, quote unquote. Yeah. That's like designing for dopamine hits. In my that's in it. my view, it's not designing for serendipity. You know, it, it, that's very different. Yeah, I fully agree. I think that is yes, I can delight you the first time, mm-hmm. but what is extraordinary quickly becomes ordinary. Mm. And particularly whenever you're doing your taxes, right? TurboTax is probably their most well known tool that they build. You're not necessarily going there for delight. Mm-hmm. It's delightful, perhaps, whenever you get money back. <laughs> Right. But I think the business model component is really important for us to think about. But I do think that designers can find creative ways to embed some of these things inside systems without breaking the business model. I don't think it's an either-or scenario. I think it's a both-and scenario. There was this conversation I had many years ago at, um, I think it was an IXDA conference, and I'm not going to be able to cite the designer who did a short presentation on it but it was the difference between ooh and ah. Have you heard of this? Mm-mm. So if you design something and the user goes, ah, right? It's just like, ah, oh, it's a relief. Or like in, in um, Asian cultures and UX design, sometimes they call it painkiller versus vitamin, right? So the, yeah. so the ah, oh, it's like a painkiller. It's like, oh, okay, thank goodness. I don't have to do my taxes by looking at these confusing forms. It's like, good, it's a relief. But then there's like the ooh, right? Which is like, whoa, delight. That's delight. That's like, seeing something new, freshness, right? Juicy design, something impressive that leaves a mark on, on your memory and makes you maybe share it, et cetera. But serendipity doesn't feel like ooh or ah. It sounds more like um, maybe a different different sound we could think of, but it's something different, yeah. right? Because it's not just like meeting expectations or exceeding expectations. It's changing the frame, like you were saying. It's defamiliarizing the person with the entire process, right? Doing your taxes is playing a, massively multiplayer online game, <laughs> something like that, where you meet random people and wind up finding a life partner. I mean, that's the level of serendipity that actually affects people. I think that designers maybe oversell their ability to do that today. I think we need to do a lot better and think a lot more laterally and outside the box in order to really create those types of digital experiences. They don't exist in the digital world almost at all. Yeah, I think that's one of the problems, right? The digital space can through the screen conform to anything that you want it to. Mm. But it's very elusive in that it, it hasn't. And, and maybe the, the feedback is, hmm. Right. Right. For, for serendipity, it's, it's, it's more of a thoughtful provocation of tr- the troubling of the waters. Yeah. Than the satisfying, like it's, it's satisfactions on the other side of it. And, and it's inviting you to take that journey. Yeah. 
So exformation. So you talked about reference frames. What is inverted exformation? One example is the data stethoscope. So I, I co-ran a lab with an astrophysicist for about five years. It was a lab called Art Sci Lab, where the projects that we worked on, we worked on only because they, they could be achieved when artists and designers worked with scientists and researchers. And that project, we collaborated with folks skilled in sonification, Scott Gresham Lancaster, I think he's out at UC Berkeley now, uh, Roger Molina, who uh, co-directed the lab, and then with Goggin Wig, who's a brain scientist at UT Dallas. And we looked at what are ways that we can begin to explore large data sets rather than through our eyeballs. So these brain scientists were very familiar with looking at large data sets, you know, in using R, using Excel, using these, these tools of, of data. What if we could take out the data notion and we could put sound and apply sound to, to data? It's nothing new necessarily. I think the Geiger counter does this, right, where you are sort of navigating through a space and it's it's telling you the the level of radiation that's there. Oh, so like sonification? Very much. Yeah, that yeah. that's that is specifically the the idea that our eyeballs can't help us mm. as much as our ears can help us. Yeah. It was a DARPA funded project so DARPA was really interested in could we take this notion and put any data set on it using machine learning could we maybe use sound to navigate through this? And this goes back to the discovery findability notions that we mentioned earlier, where the scientists are almost trying to find patterns, mm -hmm. known patterns that they are familiar with that are in many cases tacit. The expert bias has set in. We're trying to take out that idea and more move to the discoverability of that's interesting. Why is that interesting? Let me look at that, perhaps with fresh eyes. And that last notion right there, looking with fresh eyes, is the more challenging thing to try to create. It's easy to sonify the data. That doesn't take much to do that nowadays. But to try to create context where people are looking at that data with fresh eyes is the real challenge. Defamiliarization you mentioned earlier, right? The, this notion of exformation that is very similar to, to defamiliarization. Yeah. Might we be able to prompt different ways of exploring the data, different ways that the data might be interpreted right. through sonification. And the key maybe metric would be whether it leads to insight. That's right. Did you discover that there were some methods of sonification or, or other cross-modal mappings that actually led to insight that weren't was not accessible through the standard ways of looking at data? I think the project needs more time, mm. right? It, it's, it's not the way that we navigate through interfaces. We navigate through interfaces with an efficiency mindset, not an exploration mindset. Mm. We navigate through theme parks with an exploration mindset, not necessarily, well, depending on who you are, if you're a parent <laughs> taking your child to a theme park, you may have an efficiency mindset. But when we're in, a, <laughs> in an enjoyable space, mm. we want to explore, we want to poke around. And that's something that interfaces have become really good at, taking us efficiently through them, but not necessarily giving us moments to explore, to use our intuition. Interfaces don't naturally conform to that. And in many cases, they're not even designed to be that way. It sounds like we can learn something from gaming and game design for this. Yeah, I, I think there's many principles of game design. I think play is a critical one where we use the term and it almost seems unprofessional to use the term of play. That I'm going to play around with the numbers. I'm going to play around with this. And it's counterintuitively the mark of professionals you know, common sense doesn't often tell us that the word play is the thing that a professional does. But what I think play allows us to do is to bring a level of curiosity to this. Of mm -hmm. What happens if, what does this mean? Why is this built this way? And those questions that emerge from it are where our assumptions are challenged and where learning actually happens. So is the upshot that we need playful engagement with exformation to take design past what it's able to achieve so far? I think that's one way. Yeah. Okay. I think there are many ways for us to do it. I think mindfulness is an important thing. We've, we, we have a tendency to go to our technology in moments of loneliness or boredom. And that is 
is a challenge in and of itself, that there are things that we've lost as a result of that. But yielding to our curiosity, which oftentimes needs margins of time to sort of build and foment. Absolutely. You lose that with having something in your hand that can always keep you distracted from the things around us. Yeah. There's a moment, I, I can't remember which Sherlock Holmes case it was, but Holmes is talking to Inspector Lestrade and he's telling him, you see, but you don't perceive. They've both just walked up the steps of the British Museum. He asked Lestrade, how many steps are there? And Lestrade says, well, I don't know. And he's, he says, I've never counted. And, he, and Holmes basically says, you've walked up this so many times, but you see, but you don't perceive. There's so much information around us that is exportive that we just filter out. I would quibble with that because I would say, well, what is the insight you gain from knowing the number of stairs? If there's nothing useful, then actually you have done a good job of cleaving exformation from information in that case. You know, I think that's almost like a cheap shot. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the point's well taken with that particular example. Yeah. And who cares if it's 16 steps up? Yeah. But we never know when those important bits of information might be useful. Yeah. And the mindfulness part does play a role, I think, to be fair to Sherlock Holmes. I remember there was a lecture being given by a, a Buddhist intellectual. He was talking about this person who, you know, meditated with him all the time. And she came to him in crisis and she shared that she had this thought and it led to another thought. And she basically went off into a tizzy about like anxiety and frustration and was this big, long story. And then at the end, he just asked, did that thought begin on the in-breath or the (laughs) out-breath? And so I can kind of see why the counting of the steps could be like a mindfulness practice. That's a really good way to contextualize that. I hadn't thought of that as as a mindfulness practice. I'm thinking of from Dune, the quote on fear Mm. that I, I wish I could recite from memory, but Essentially, the, um, the character says that fear is the little death, right? I will let it pass over me. And once it's passed over, only I will remain. Mm. It's this idea that we can step outside of ourselves and look at ourselves as if we were a, a participant, rather uh, a, a third party from ourselves. Right. And just that activity helps to dislodge us yes. from the current moment, from the present problems. And maybe that is something that is uniquely possible with digital technology in a way that's never been possible before. I mean, you know how people talk about how they hate listening to their own voice or seeing themselves on video because they're just so not used to it. Younger generation of people, they've all grown up on Instagram, so they don't have that same, they have a set of anxieties around it, but it's not the same of just being like unfamiliar with your own image and your own sound. And then there are these stories about, you know, therapy techniques. There's like a couple's therapy technique where you have virtual reality environment and you actually embody the other person's body virtually. And so you're speaking to yourself as the other person working through problems. I mean, that is something like, you know, digital technology can only do, and it probably have never done it, but it must be so extraordinarily trippy, right? Or these interfaces where you have like a backpack with a GoPro up on a crane behind you and you see yourself in third person walking through the world. And so it looks like you're in a open world video game of yourself, just experiencing yourself as a third person. What I'm really talking about is this thing about this concept of an out-of-body experience that's induced by VR, which is at this point pretty well-researched. What a brilliant and effective way of achieving that, right? It's, yeah. It is rather than having the mind do the cognitive labor, <laughs> have the eye do the visual labor yes, of that, and then right. allow the mind to do its thing. I'm just thinking out loud, if I saw myself from behind, how much better would my posture be Yeah, <laughs> when I'm sitting in a chair? And what is that? Charles Eames made this movie. What was it called? It was is like... It Powers of 10? Yeah, Powers of 10. Isn't that the same thing? It's basically like, instead of doing the cognitive work of trying to imagine how big the world can be and how small it can be and trying to understand scale intellectually, you just see it. It's all just laid out for you and you can watch it over and over again until you begin to understand it. That was like an early attempt at this, but that is what we're talking about. We're talking about using technology to offload the cognition of mindfulness or perspective taking onto the senses. That's wonderful. I mean, as you're talking about this, I'm seeing all of the possibilities for this. And it's a positive use of technology. I I think many of us 
in the 90s were techno-positivists. Mm-hmm. We didn't see technology as, as problematic. Mm-hmm. The notion of move fast and breaking things was, was okay back then, right? Here, 30, 40 years later in 2020, we tend to be techno-negativists, at least in the academic side. We, we tend to look at it as the problem, the thing that has caused so many problems. And I think it's Bernard Stiegler who talks about the Greek notion of a pharmacon. Mm. It's where we get the word pharmacy. It's where we get the notion of the drug. It can be both good and bad. Yeah. I guess what we're also saying is with virtual technologies, you can change the rules mm. of how the world works. When you come back to the rules of this world, you realize that they're not the only possibility, right? It's like a mind-opening exercise. It reminds me, have you ever played Super Hot? You know the game Super Hot? So it's a first-person shooter, but you're just fighting against these shapes. They're not really people. It's not really that violent. But these people are trying to get to you and trying to hurt you. And um, you, try, you try to like shatter them first. They're all made out of glass. But time only advances when you move. Hmm. You see these shapes coming towards you. And you have to calculate, how do I get out of the way so that when they come for me, they miss, right? So you start to duck and move. But as you move, they start moving towards you. Sometimes you have to move fast. Sometimes you have to move slow in order to beat the game. But it's very trippy because at first you, it's very hard for your brain to understand it. And then you adapt. And then I remember I, was, I played it for a while and then I went to brush my teeth. And I just had this sensation that like if I just reach for my toothbrush slowly... Or quickly, like that was a choice that would have some kind of consequence in the world. Yeah. It just had rewired my brain in only you know two hours of playing. What you're describing reminds me of um, the classic example of looking at how we use our senses, the inverted bicycle, right? Uh-huh. When you turn right, uh, your bicycle turns right. But on the inverted bicycle, when you turn right, your bicycle turns left. Yeah. And professional cyclists, professional off-roaders, et cetera, will, will learn that. And they will reorient and recalibrate their minds for how that works over time. And it takes them less time, strangely enough, mm-hmm. to, to do that than it does, you know, the, the person for whom cycling is just a hobby. But, you know, the ways in which we can view ourselves and then rethink those mundane moments. I love that as you reach for your toothbrush, you had a spectacular moment, mm-hmm. right? How many times do we do that? How many toothbrushing sessions do I remember from the last five years? That one I remember. I'll always remember. Yeah. Much less tell somebody about it. Right. (laughs) That's the sort of things that good design makes possible. There is this notion that good design gets better with age. Products can get better with age rather than worse, right? It's very much counter to the notions of planned obsolescence of our technology. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a, a suede bag that I've had for about 25 years I just love the scuff marks on it. I love that these small imperfections give it character rather than make it ugly. Yeah. You know, that it carries memories for me. Yeah. Uh, as well as physical things too. Yeah. People are being sold fast fashion and all kinds of garbage. There's the book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's post-apocalyptic, right? So there's many fewer people than there used to be. And there's a lot of forgotten knowledge. And the world is filled with kipple. It's just plastic junk and nobody actually knows what it was supposed to do and nobody has any use for it but it seems to breed on its own it's very funny we use the word kipple around our house a lot to be like is that kipple or is that like (laughs) something that we should keep you know but you know i mean i think there's a level of mindfulness to be like oh that's a nice new bag and like i'm I'm attracted to it in the moment but i have my bag i like my bag i like the personality it has and the history that it has you know it's easy to just not notice the opportunity to keep to hold on to a beloved object and to not replace it with junk. And I think certainly the design world is like, that's what we do, right? They all do it. But the consumer, probably not. Have you seen the documentary Social Dilemma? Yeah. You know, a lot of what you're talking about, Tristan Harris and then some of the others in the Social Dilemma are explaining how behavioral scientists and folks engaged in technology have really made these dopamine hits so prevalent if your brain is yet forming, if I'm still quite young, it's almost impossible to overcome those dopamine hits that that we're getting. Yeah. Back during techno-optimism in the 90s, we weren't very good at inducing that. In the process of trying to induce it, we did a lot of other good stuff. Yeah. And so it was like, oh, that's a noble pursuit. Give people dopamine hits because like in the process, you're bringing them knowledge or you're bringing them products that they want or you're bringing, you know, you're making them happy. But we got so good at it. Cognitive science got so good 
technology got so good. It's almost like the untrained mind is endgamed. Like you said, there's nothing you can do about it. It's basically like being given a drug, you know, you're going to like it. That's it. There's just, it's too powerful. And now we have to be more intentional about when and how we design in pleasure. Yes. And going back to that notion of serendipity that you mentioned earlier as well, if, if I'm waiting in line, right, pre-1990s, when we still had cellular phones on which we could text and the like, yeah, it becomes a convenience for me to look down and interact with the cellular phone rather than the people around me and try to have conversations with the people around me. And so all of a sudden, I'm connected now to somebody who may be across the nation or across the world who's on the face of my screen rather than the person who's physically next to me. And, yeah. and I might actually have more in common with. Yeah. It's interesting how when you're in a city, you don't necessarily think about the person next to you as, as having something in common with you. But when, let's say, we you go to Paris and all of a sudden you hear an American accent and you ask the person where they're from and they're from the same city you are, you feel a kinship with that person. Oh, yeah. And this goes back to that notion of defamiliarization. It took me going to Paris to connect with somebody who lives in the same city that I might not have felt that connection with before. Yeah. And I think these notions need to be more widely known. That's it. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was getting at too, because it's like, okay, I have two ideas in my head. One is investors listening to this, nobody cares about this conversation, right? (laughs) Like nobody, like this is like way out there. And, And it's like, okay, so how exactly are people going to pursue this type of experience? How are they going to throw dollars at it? If you're telling me that you're going to reduce the amount of pleasure and utility that they get from something in order to increase their human connection with being alive. I mean, it just, it's not concrete. The flip side of that is there is like a general education component to this where we talk to children about like when people offer you drugs and you try drugs, you know, maybe like you might feel nice in the moment, but this is all the things that go wrong. And so we train people to think through the the risk and reward with all kinds of different behaviors. It's not impossible that we couldn't educate people to be aware of when they're being marketed to and to resist marketing messages and to be intentional about what they buy and like how they live. It's not impossible, but it's not something that is, it's it's non-trivial and it's not just a design problem. I think there's a much bigger problem with business and education as well as being part of that. I think you're right. I think coming back to business, those notions of what will the market value? Mm -hmm. What happens whenever these abstract notions hit the, you know, Wall Street, hit the, the, the Fortune 100 companies, they end up getting filtered through, right, what will save us money or what will make us money, which are good things to, to think about. But I, I also think that that's the efficiency mindset that we, we sometimes need. But I should speak for myself. Oftentimes, I don't find pleasure just from an efficiency mindset. Mm-hmm. If I were to say to my wife, you know, I'm only, let's only spend 15 minutes and let's have an agenda for the time that we have during our dinner. It's not a very satisfying space yeah. uh, of time. I remember listening to Klaus Krippendorf talk about emergence and evolution. And he said, interestingly, that the fastest thing to evolve is not a being, it's conversation. We never know where it's going to go. Mm. In business, I have an agenda for a meeting. I have, I know exactly where I want it to go. And I have my, almost opportunistically, I, I have the, the way that I'd like it to end, as does everybody who walks into to the meeting. But with our personal life, those with, for whom we, we probably are the closest, we probably have less of those notions. But we should have them, no? You think it's bad to be too efficient? By, by no means. I, I think they're, they're probably closer to the things that we hold dear. Yeah. We want to, you know, the, the, the phrase to live, to love, to leave a, leave a legacy often comes up whenever you talk about these, these things. And they're, they're much more personal. And, and I, I think, I don't know how technology can help us to recover some of those more important components, yeah. right? It seems like Facebook, when it, we first jumped on Facebook in 2006, right? We were excited about connecting to friends from high school, friends we hadn't seen, right? And there was this naivety around it. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, and that is like a real value, like lost relationships. We had no way of tracking them before, now we do. And now they're not as valuable to us. And a lot of us have just decided, me included, I closed my Facebook account and I have friends who've been like, but Dave, there are certain people that you will literally never speak to again. And I'm like, I know. And that sucks, right? But it's like a risk reward thing. And the few interactions I have with these people, I would love to continue having them, but I can't have them in good conscience anymore. So there's no, there's no good solution to that. But it does remind me of a video that I saw, maybe it was on Facebook a few years ago. <laughs> of um, a makeup artist who had a couple who were newlyweds. And she, in a progression, I think it was 10 years at a time or so, she aged both of them and had them talk to each other and meet each other. And it was really, really well done. So this newlywed couple, she made them look 30 and then 40, 60, 80, 90. And so you're looking at your partner as they're going to look, you know, in 60 or 70 years. And they broke down crying. It was like incredibly emotional and that experience, like you said, totally defamiliarized themselves with each other in a way that made the relationship more valuable. And, and it, it is kind of this planning thing because now you're like, you don't have an agenda for your life, but you're like, now that you can see how it will end and you know how you want it to end, maybe it's better to be confronted with that. You know, if you're talking about an agenda with your family at the dinner table, but like if you were playing a mind game and you were like, what if this is the last time I got to speak to them? You know, then you would have an agenda. <laughs> So I just wonder if that perspective taking digital technology can really help us live our best lives by presenting us with the stark realities of life that we ignore for our own protection, but really it's to our own detriment. I think we are both struck by this notion of mindfulness, of just being more purposeful and being more attentive. Yeah. And obviously being in the moment. Your, your listeners may have heard my phone, which is turned upside down, buzz every so often on my table. And I should probably move it away so that it doesn't do that. But in the back of my mind, I, I want to be able to yeah. hear those things so that I'm connected, right? It's pervasive in a way that's that almost is without boundaries for most individuals. Mm. It's not that technology hasn't brought us closer, but the boundaries that we place on it is really critical. Well, so actually, does that relate to way showing? Yeah, so way showing as a notion is the idea that we as designers can only point the way. Mm -hmm. And Per Malarup, who, who came up with this idea, I think he wrote about it and his book came out in like 2005, also talks about the notion of way losing. All right, if we can show the way, we can find the way, we can also lose the way. Way losing opens us up for those serendipitous moments oh, I, I came to the store for, you know, my grocery list, but look, I found somebody who I haven't seen in years. Yeah. Or I helped somebody who needed help in a, in a critical moment. Yeah. Right? Way losing can also be very important. It's like a side quest. I don't know how much gaming you do, but it's, <laughs> I saw a shower thought on Reddit recently and it was like, procrastination is really just doing side quests instead of the main quest, you know? <laughs> And I guess the person in the uh, in the grocery store would be a NPC, right? <laughs> but yeah, designing again for serendipity is another level of way of losing than just side quests. I don't necessarily know how you, what are the ways that you design for that? Because it's it's really about the individual identifying, oh, that's that's interesting to me. So you're just kind of setting up situations that are unstable for people and inviting them to take the risk of engaging with this unstable situation. Instability is carefully designed itself. What you've mentioned about going back to games is interesting. I watched my little niece play Monument Valley. Mm. And, you know, the thing about games is that you can try again, again, and again, and there is very little loss, right? It's time that's lost maybe and frustration that's lost. But in real life, it also is time that's lost, but it could also be money. It, it could be whatever the opportunity cost of that thing is. Yeah. Maybe that's a construct that designers can further exploit to enable way losing and moments of serendipity. Yeah. What are some examples of way losing? Sometimes it's choosing an alternative path of getting home. Yeah. Driving home. If we were to avoid the common path that we have, all of the roads that we usually take home, how do we get home? And what it does is it actually forces you to begin building new constructs and seeing new places. Way losing is also the space of adventure, the thing that we weren't planning on finding, but yet we did. You create moments of opportunity. 
But you also have to reward those moments of opportunity. I think that's why we don't often go there is, will I be rewarded whether it's meaningful in terms of I gain meaning out of that yeah, or, or something something else? In art therapy, there's this concept of flooding too, right? Where like um, you, you can't expose people too much to the truth. You, mm. you have to do it step by step or direct the therapy, you know, in a certain direction. If, if you're helping somebody with a phobia, let's say exposure therapy is a really good way of doing it but you don't expose them to like a flood of, of anxiety and fear all at once. You, you take a step-by-step approach. And so maybe there's like a way losing schema we could create that quantifies the amount of way losing at each stage and asks for user feedback. That's interesting. Way losing of familiar patterns. And I, I know very little about exposure therapy, but CBT puts forward the idea that it's, it's essentially talk therapy where the, third party, the therapist becomes unnecessary mm-hmm. and you are able to identify the cognitive distortions that you have and way losing becomes really important there. Uh, if you, you want to lose the way of your normal patterns and you want to identify new ways that you can respond. We keep bringing in other threads, but it reminds me of the hero cycle, the call to adventure, right? You don't have to accept that call, but it involves leaving everything you've known and like venturing out to become something different. And when you come back, you're, you're a different person. Your homecoming is significant because you're forever changed from your adventure. And in ways that you couldn't predict or know beforehand. Right. But this is where I think reflection is so critical. Yeah. There's this delicious quote from Kierkegaard. It's the irony of life that it's lived forward, but understood only backward. Mm. And just that notion that we can only understand things whenever we reflect is really troublesome. Mm-hmm. I think I probably reflect less now than I did uh, before technology and in different ways. I, I think the ways that I reflect are sometimes interrupted mm. because of technology. Mm-hmm. And that notion of reflection is really critical. I think you know anybody who's taken graduate-level design classes is probably familiar with Donald Schoen's reflective practitioner that puts forward these notions that the designer needs to be reflective in their practice and needs to explore the ways in which design is affecting the self, the community. I hope that more designers actually practice that whenever they're out in industry. Do you have any other specific examples from information architecture about weight losing, how it works? Oftentimes it's looked at as a negative. We want to try to keep somebody on the path. If you're in a hospital and you want to get somebody to the right floor or the right wing, weight losing is something that you want to design again. So you'll create affordances and signifiers to make sure that you're confirming along the way that they are, uh, you're showing the way correctly. Mm-hmm. But I think for what we've been talking about, we've been talking about way losing as actually a way to take away the familiar and explore the unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. I've said the word many times, and I think it's something that we have to explore further. Making people curious is resonating within the individual that hmm, there's something there. Let me explore it. It's an invitation open to anyone to explore. The door is always there, right? We have to sort of accept the invitation and then step through in order to do it. But it also requires mindsets. And I think this is the cueing that a designer can do whenever you are way losing. If you're out for a walk, way losing doesn't seem so bad if you're enjoying where you are, nature, the sounds, the sun, the wind, exercise, the, the breathing. You know, the ways that designers can cue individuals for that. I I was reading, there's a Royal College of Art student whose senior thesis looked at ways that she could help. I think it was her grandmother, who was, uh, I think, in her 80s, didn't eat very much. Ways that she could help her grandmother feel more hungry. Mm. One of the things that she found was that when you drink from a mug that is any color but red, you actually enjoy the flavors less which is to say that red in a mug, if you're drinking tea or coffee, your brain will perceive those flavors as actually more enjoyable. I don't know the mechanics of that, but those are things that visual designers, UX designers often don't know, but industrial designers, 
engage in those spaces, right? I think that there's something to be retained from industrial design, designing of physical products that UX designers who design just things that don't actually exist in the real world, they only exist on pixels, to sort of explore these spaces. If all we're doing is looking at Fitz's law through a system, it's not enough to get us to where we need to go. Right. I think user experience design education needs to reclaim some of that we had in building physical products. So maybe UX as a practice has become too specialized. It should be really design education. I think they leave out some of the really more interesting parts of design, the truly human components. I think we're convincing ourselves that, yeah, empathy is the human component. Don Norman's article some uh, months back on why I don't believe in empathetic design. Yeah. He really challenges this idea that we can truly empathize with other individuals. Let's unpack that for a minute because I was having a conversation about empathy just recently. I feel like this word is on the downswing. It Good. used to be, you know, empathetic leadership, empathetic design. It was like the panacea. And I think what I'm perceiving is it's, it's the trend is away from empathetic design, or at least from putting that word in such a high regard that it trumps all other considerations. What is the issue with empathy? It's often seen as a silver bullet. Norman talks about, is it even possible for us to truly empathize? Can I really understand what it's like to step in to not be able to walk, let's say, right? It's oftentimes used in regard to accessibility. Patricia Moore is a good example of this. Her famous statement is, I was 26 when I was 85. And she worked for Raymond Lowy in his design firm. She was the only female in Raymond Lowy's design firm. When asked about, what about people who have trouble using our products, people who may be disabled, people who may have different abilities than us. She was basically told, we don't design for those individuals. Mm. And she ended up putting on prosthetics, ended up touring the country for about two and a half years when she was 26 years old, dressing up as an 85-year-old woman, putting physical prosthetics in her shoes so that she would walk with a limp mm. and, and embodied this. That is empathy. By the way, she, Patricia Moore doesn't have any children because when she was dressed up as an 85-year-old woman, she was beaten up in a back alley. And whatever happened there affected her reproductive system. Wow. I mean, that is commitment to understanding, right? She's made a life choice that, that is truly empathetic. Mm -hmm. I don't find that level of commitment in most designers. It's almost a way of telling ourselves, I've checked the box, let me move forward. If we were more interested in the individual, it would get us there. But empathy says that I know you well enough to be able to design for you. Yeah, That may be true for some things. I don't, I don't think it's universally true. I myself don't even know what I want at, at many times, let alone you being able to tell me that. Right. Back when I was learning musical instrument design, some of the most important musical instrument designs that were advances were based on solving very specific problems and often for very specific people by a designer working directly with a person over time, creating a very specific solution for them. That can sometimes lead to general advances, right? I think non-impossible labs, they do this, create organization. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but um, yeah. yeah, they choose one person that they think that they can help and then they swarm and solve that problem. And then actually... I've heard recently, you know, one of the things that they're struggling with is that step. Once they have the solution for one person, generalizing it is actually much more difficult than maybe you might first assume. But yeah, oftentimes a really great design solution comes from not empathy per se in a general way, but direct interaction with a subject and direct feedback from that person. The theremin was designed by Leon Theremin. He was working with specifically one person, uh, a violist, I believe, who had a a disorder that made it painful for her to press upon her instrument, right? And so he created this touchless instrument for her and, and refined it over time and made it perfect as far as a theremin could be perfect. Um, and then, then that was it. That was the end of that design process and it lives on today and people play it. So the focus on the individual, again, going back to therapy to understanding a person, it's not necessarily empathizing with them, but it's being engaged with them and knowing them deeply and learning from them and also validating what you do with that one person. 
This brings in also the notion of personas. When we design personas, they're stand-ins. Mm-hmm. We should always think about who can I actually talk to? Who in the real world can I actually talk to? Rather than the persona as a stand-in, the real person yeah. standing in for the persona, yeah. right? Who can I actually talk to that would help me understand this better rather than designing around the persona? Because the persona will never say no to the ideas that you have. That's a good point. <laughs> and the human will engage in the frustration of, of bad design, but the persona typically doesn't, right? Yeah. It's, it's a cognitive labor that, that exists only in our minds and is part of the problem with empathy. Maybe we need like a user board of directors for our designs, yeah. you know, a small group of people that we keep in touch with over time. And you know what, if they move on and they don't need it anymore, that's also a signal, right? I think we're, what we're battling here is efficiency, right? A lot of the things that we're talking about just take more time. Yeah. Maybe a couple of thoughts to tie the threads that we've unraveled here. The mind's kind of like any muscle. It tends to tighten with age. And this is maybe why we become less curious, Mm. right? Our muscles atrophy very much in the way that our mind kind of atrophies. Mm. And so curiosity is oftentimes looked at in the realm of creativity. I think it offers us so much more than just creativity. And it's a narrow way of, of casting it. Yeah, that component of of curiosity is is something that we can begin to put into practice. I'm beginning to explore ways that we can habitualize curiosity rather than the habit of being incurious. How can we promote a habit of being curious in the world around us? And the research that I've been exploring sort of shows that people have paid researchers a lot of money to come up with things that you or I could come up with if you put us in a room and gave us 30 minutes ask more questions, be more present, yeah. take more time, right? All of the things that are important to curiosity. We talked about the information age. I wonder if maybe curiosity would let us move towards an imagination age. Rather than living out of memory, we're living from our imagination. When you live out of your memory, you kind of focus on the past and there's little place to grow. And when you focus on your imagination, you're you're reaching into the past, like you're building on the past. And it's not just purely the future, but you're looking towards the future and there is a space to grow. Mm. That's the thing that I would like to capture. I'm thinking of people who've said, you know, we've moved from a data poor meaning rich situation to a data rich meaning poor situation, right? So meaning is important as well. But I wonder if, if imagination is something that we might be able to reclaim as we move beyond the information age. Yeah. And learning, designing for curiosity is designing opportunities. Again, opportunities, you can't force it, but you're opening up learning opportunities that are intrinsically rewarding, maybe extrinsically, but they provide this this opening. I wanted to read you this quote, actually, that's why I was looking at my phone about learning. And you talked about the muscle for curiosity atrophying as we grow old. This is a quote from T.H. White. I'm not sure which book it's from. The best thing for being sad is to learn something. That's the only thing that never fails. You may grow old and trembling in your anatomies. You may lie awake at night listening to the disorder of your veins. You may miss your only love. You may see the world about you devastated by evil lunatics or know your honor trampled in the sewers of baser minds. There's only one thing for it then, to learn. Learn why the world wags and what wags it. That is the only thing which the mind can never exhaust, never alienate, never be tortured by, never fear or distrust and never dream of regretting. Learning is the only thing for you. Look what a lot of things there are to learn. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, I think about that a lot. I think about that as like kind of when I get sad about aging. I think Mm -hmm. about that quote, and I remember that. There's always the opportunity to learn. And like you said, if you're using your imagination and you're learning, then you are building some hope for the future. We need to reclaim that childhood sort of natural curiosity that we had. Children are, are almost natural scientists. Yeah. They build experiments, you know, they're naturally curious. And to reclaim some of that with the world around us is something that I, I would challenge designers to do. I certainly am really excited actually for the framework you're developing. I don't know how far you are with your book, but could be the marker of a new age of design. You know, the social dilemma being the the very end of the old age designing for curiosity being the beginning of a new one. You know, that's that's where we are right now. I see this threshold and it couldn't happen at a more important time with 5G and tactile technologies and all these things that are involving more and more of your brain and more and more of your body and digital interaction. 
we need new models for building experiences. I think we're still living in the digital stone age and very much like the first stone age, our digital stone age will end, but it didn't end because they ran out of stones. It ended because they found something better. And that's what I'm hoping that we as designers can find. Awesome. Well, where, yeah, where can we follow your work? I will be launching a website on Curiosity on February 27th, which is World Information Architecture Day. I invite you to visit worldiaday.com to learn a little bit more about that. It's going to be in, I think, 28 different countries uh, across the world. I'll be unveiling some resources for how designers can incorporate Curiosity into their work and incorporate Curiosity into their daily practice. Sweet. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dave. Bye. Thank you for listening. More information about this show is available at podcast.davebernbaum.com. Beats by Illy MC. Copyright 2021.